0: Well, good morning. Um, my name is Logan. I have the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Lower Manhattan Community Church. Um, if you are here for the youth service, they are headed out right now. So if you're a youth, you can join them at the Bagels. Um, after the service, they're going to have brunch. So if you're a parent of the youth, they'll be done around 1230. And um, so we're excited to see them engage with God together this morning. Um, I was not not supposed to preach today. (laughs) Um, One of our pastors, Dan Carpenter, was planning to preach, and earlier this week he told me that he wasn't feeling well, and you know, Dan's kind of a diva. Um, And like most men, when they get sick, they try to dramatize it and make it like they're dying. Um, But it turns out the stomach flu is no joke, and um, he's had a rough week. I'm happy to report he's making progress, so please continue to pray for him. Uh, But I have the honor to step in uh, for him today. And we're continuing in this sermon series that's been titled, Lead Us Back. And it's during a season in the church calendar that's uh, an invitation for us to prepare for Easter Sunday. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. And it's not something that we just celebrate one Sunday. But it's important for us to look to that one Sunday to remember the victories of God we just sang of the goodness of God and all we've been praying about for this morning is that you would feel God's goodness in your life because if you feel that God is good it creates this longing for more that you would say I want more of God in my life if this is the measure of goodness and he says he wants to give me more give me more And that's our hope for you this morning. But part of this sermon series is an invitation to acknowledge that we haven't experienced the goodness of God. We've actually rejected it in our lives, and we've turned away from Him. And so what we're trying to do is to acknowledge where we have rebelled against God and then return back to Him. And so this message this morning is actually a continuation of a message that I gave a few weeks ago about God's approach to our sin. Now, sin is not popular. It's not fun to talk about. What I talked about a few weeks ago was that we experience sin every time we cry out, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's not how it's supposed to be in our workplace, in our families, in our friendships. If we feel that pain of betrayal or loss or difficulty, we go, this is not right. I'm not supposed to feel this way. And God agrees. And when God identifies sin, it's a hope to remove what's standing in the way of his goodness so you could only experience his goodness. And so there's going to be a verse that is really the theme of this Sunday, but the theme of this message uh, that I just want to read for you because it is a consistent message throughout the scriptures. It's a description of who God is. And we need to center on that as we talk about sin so we don't forget who our God is and project on him some image that we have in our minds that's not true. And it's found for the first time and then repeated throughout the scriptures but it's found for the first time in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and and sin. This is our God. And today I want to look at God's first response to the first sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3. But before I do that, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Because more than anything, you need God's voice in your life, as Alf read about earlier. So let's pray. Father, we declare what we were just singing, that we surrender our minds and our hearts and our lives fully to you. Because when we give it to you, you lead us in paths of abundance and goodness and life. And so today, lead us back. Lead us back to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read from Genesis 3 in a moment. And what happens there is it's the first act of rebellion against God. And then God enters into the scene and reacts. Now, I need to identify one character for you because it's not exactly clear. It starts off talking about this serpent who speaks. Now, the rest of the scriptures inform the fact that this serpent is actually a fallen angel named Satan. That's our common name for him that has rebelled against God. And in his rebellion, he's trying to break everything God designed. And so he's appearing in the form of an animal in an attempt to disrupt the order that God has created. That God has made man and woman to reign over the earth, to reign over the animals. And here comes Satan in the form of an animal to try to reverse what God has designed. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 13. Here's what it says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will actually be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Good fashion choices. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. The title of my message is... Where are you? Those are the first words that God says in response to the sinfulness of Adam and Eve. Where are you? And it's a question that actually echoes throughout history, and it's a question for you today. That God may look to you and say, where are you today? And as I unpack what is meant by that question, I want to do so within three stages from this scene. The first stage is God's response to the first sin. The second is the answer God desires when he confronts us. And the third is the true grace that he invites us to receive. So the first is looking at God's approach. Now, I want to help you see, because you might be like, what's up with this tree? <laughs> Why does this tree matter so much that they ate from it? Well, God created the Garden of Eden. He created it as this paradise. Full of abundance. It literally says everything they could ever want and need was there. And there were two specific trees. There was the tree of life, that if they ate of it, they would live forever. But there was one tree that God said they couldn't eat. In all the abundance, He said, Don't eat this one. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the one where Satan comes in and tempts and says, God's holding out on you. (laughs) Don't look at the abundance. Look at the boundary. And in the boundary, you see a God who doesn't want you to have everything that's good for you. See, he knows you won't really die. At least not immediately. Now, this is the cunning nature of the devil, is to question God. His name literally means the accuser. And he's accusing God of holding out, of not being one who blesses, of not being one who wants you to have all good things. And so you have to ask the question, why does God not want us to have trees or fruit from the knowledge of good and evil? What's so bad about that? And the answer we see throughout scriptures is that God alone is able to carry this knowledge, good and evil, and not choose evil. See, when we carry this knowledge of what we think is evil and what we think is good, we bounce back and forth between good and evil. But God alone... Can see what is evil, can see what is wrong, can see what is broken, and then not choose it and always choose good. And so he didn't want us to carry this burden that we were unable to carry. He doesn't want to give you something that you can't handle, right? It's the same way a parent wouldn't give their child something that they couldn't handle. You know, I have teenagers and they want to drive, I don't want to die. So I will not give them the keys to the car and the driver's seat. They're not ready for that. They're getting there, scarily enough. But it is important that I, as a father, don't say, yeah, go for it. See, God is seeking to instruct and guide them into what is good. Now, Adam and Eve choose not to look up to God, as Alicia was calling out last week to us. And saying, as they're wrestling with this idea, they don't look up to God and consider what he said. See, Eve actually distorts what God says, goes further. Not only eat of it, but don't even touch it. That's not what God said. In doing so, we see this first act of religion, where religion tends to go beyond what God says and creates extra rules that God has not made. And when we create extra rules, we're really good at breaking them. (laughs) And religion is really good at that. But then they choose to eat of it, and they don't die immediately. But death does come in. Death comes into the form of shame where they felt freedom. Death comes in to the form of their relationship, where they once felt love and unity. Now they feel separation and accusation. But look how God approaches them. He walks in. In the cool of the day, when the breeze is flowing, he walks in. See, this is the measure of a gracious and loving God that's not waiting for you to fail. Sometimes we think if we're gonna step out of bounds, God's ready to there and go, oh, I gotcha. But as they choose to eat of it, he doesn't rush in. They have time to literally sew fashion, they got some time. He doesn't rush in and go, gotcha. You messed up. I knew you'd do it. He walks in calmly. And while they retreat, he pursues. That's our God. That even when we reject and rebel against him, he comes after us. Patiently, slowly, and then he gets there and his first response is a question. Where are you? See, he asks a few other questions, but it's fascinating that he starts with that one. See, the last question that he asks is, what have you done? And that's the question we think is going to be first. But he asks the question of where. Now, a few things that I just want to point out. God loves to ask questions. When Jesus shows up on the scene, who's the representation of God, he asks over 300 questions. He has 183 questions asked of him, and he only directly answers three. But he asks 307. Why does God so often ask us questions? He is all-knowing. He knows the answer before you say it. He says he knows every thought before you utter it. Why would an all-knowing God ask questions? It's not for his benefit. It is for yours. The same way a teacher might use a Socratic method to be able to bring out of you the wrong answers in hopes that the right answer would come forth because it is God saying seek what's inside of you so that you can declare what's going on. And that question of where is an important one. For God to say where are you is first a question of proximity. That's the question of where. Where? But it's not just a question of proximity about anything, it's something of value that has been lost. That's why you ask that question. See, I have this bad habit of placing my wallet in random places in our house. It doesn't make any sense, it confuses everyone in my household. And then I'm frantically running around going, Where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? I have to leave. Why am I crying out, Where is my wallet? It's a value and it's lost. And for God to stand and declare to Adam and Eve, where are you, is a question of proximity declaring, you are valuable to me, and I have lost you from my presence. It's first a question of proximity. Where are you? Why are you not in the place of my presence? Which is beautiful because God is saying, your sin does not separate you from my presence. It doesn't remove you. I expect you to be right here when I come, whether you have been good or bad. I come to you, and I want to be in your presence, and you in mine. Nothing can separate you from that. You're valuable, I love you, and I want you in my presence. I want you near to me. But it's not only a question of proximity, it becomes a question of intimacy. It's a relational question. You know, if you were in a relationship... And someone's mind wanders. I'm using myself as an example. It's like, where'd you go? Where are you? Why are you not in in direct relationship with me anymore? See, it's this conversation and invitation to say, you have left my presence, but come on back. Come on back to be with me. This question of where are you is a very beautiful question because it's an invitation to them to say, be aware of where you are, so that you can return to where God intended you to be. And that question does echo out throughout history. Where are you today with God? Do you come into this space feeling as though you've been in God's presence all week? God rejoices. That's great. Have you come into this space feeling like God is far from you? I don't know where he is. I have actually been in rebellion. I've been in sin. God is not far from you. God comes in to pursue you and asks you, where are you? It's an invitation to come back. That's his purpose. God's questions is to call you out so that you can declare where you've been, but so that you will return. It's a work of restoration. And God always initiates. Because there's a part of me that when I read this, I'm like, why didn't they, right when they eat it, go, oh crap, God, we messed up. But then I remember that the pattern of humanity is never in the midst of a mess up to return. It's typically to retreat. But God doesn't get concerned with our retreating and our running. He runs faster. His goodness of God is running after you, we just sang it, and it's true. It never stops pursuing you. And that is the parable that Jesus preaches over and over and over again. He runs after the lost sheep because he is a good shepherd. He doesn't wait for the sheep to cry out. He goes after it to bring it back. And God is coming after you today to bring you back. So God says, where are you? In hopes that you might see that he is good and worthy of returning to. Because if God's angry, do Adam and Eve come out of hiding? If God is harsh... Are they looking forward to the conversation that follows? No. But when they see and are reminded that God's goodness is the abundance that he gave, not the boundaries that he set, God's goodness overwhelms the sin that I commit, they can come back to him. The theologian John Calvin said this about mankind. He said, No one will dedicate himself to God until he be drawn by his goodness and embrace him with all his heart. He must therefore call us to him before we call upon him. We can have no access till he first invites, allured and delighted by the goodness of God. Today, the invitation is to see God as good so that it's easy to come back to him. And when you come back to him, there are some answers that God is looking for. See, he asks, Where are you? in hopes that you would respond. And so I want to look at Adam and Eve's response to say there are some right answers that they give that he expects. And they're different than answers that other people give. We see throughout scriptures that people give answers that evidence a hardness of heart. In the very next chapter, God comes to with questions to Cain, and Cain rejects those questions. Throughout time, we see God say, where are you? What are you doing? And we see a people that re- they rebel. But we don't see that with Adam and Eve. And I think it's important for us to see how gracious God is in their responses. Because Adam and Eve, and the response they give, the first thing they do is they come out from hiding. They've been hiding in guilt and shame. And their first response is to come out of hiding. That's a beautiful picture for us to remember, that when we go into sin, we tend to run to guilt and shame and the invitation of God is stop hiding behind guilt and shame and come and be in his presence. The first response that God is looking for is that you would just come out of hiding, quit lying about what's going on. God knows. He knew what had happened with Adam and Eve. He wasn't standing there curious as an investigator or detective trying to figure out the pieces of what happened. He was saying, let's stop hiding. You stop hiding mentally. You stop hiding your heart. You stop hiding physically from me. Some of you have been running from God for a while. Why? Because you haven't been to church in a while. You haven't been in his word in a while. You haven't been in prayer in a while. These behaviors. God is saying, bring your heart out from behind behaviors and just come back to try to be in relationship. So the first response he's looking for you is that you could come out of hiding. But the second is that you would enter into a state of honesty. And let's look at their confession for a second because it is a mixed and it is a messy confession. But it is an honest confession. It's a confession that may sound like the confessions that we make. He starts with Adam who says, It was the woman that you gave me and she gave me the fruit. And I ate it. Mixed and messy. He's honest. He did it. But man, it's messy because he's blaming. So his shame and hiding has turned from shaming to blaming. Because he wants an excuse to justify his actions. And what's beautiful about this is Eve is the most honest. God turns to her and says, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. She didn't say the devil made me do it. (laughs) Which is a really good Christian go-to. I was deceived, and I ate it. She's the most honest, and so God stops questioning her. He turns to the serpent after that and begins issuing the consequences for the serpent's action and then he turns to the woman and the consequences for her are only two verses he turns to the man the consequences are like six god is not interested in you having a perfect planned beautiful confession that's flowery he's interested in you not justifying not hiding not pretending as if you have a good excuse but just saying this is what happened And this is what I did. Because that's when honesty begins to move to humility. Because what happens in sin is pride. What happened with the devil was pride. I don't want to be in this order that God had created. I want to be on top, so I'm going to disrupt what God made. What happened with Adam and Eve? I don't want to be told what I can or cannot do. I don't want to be told that I can't have something that looks like it could be good for me, and God says it's not. Maybe God doesn't really know. I'm going to uproot the system. Instead of having the humility to go, wait, God who spoke the world into existence with his words, who sat with me as I named the animals, who pointed out the different trees and fruits, and talked about when you cultivate them, they'll multiply. They'll never lack of abundance. In fact, fill the earth with all of this good stuff. Oh, humility that says, if that's who God is, I can trust when He says no, as much as when He says yes. And that humility has to come to be able to say, this is who I am, and this is what I have done. No longer in hiding. No longer in shame. An honest and true confession that then just humbly says, whatever you're going to do, I receive. So God asks, where are you? In hopes that you will come and be honest. To be honest, to say, I don't believe you're good, if that's what it is. Or I'm mad at so-and-so because I think they caused me to do this. He does well with your honesty so that he can move you into humility. Because if he can get you in a place of humility, you can finally get back to what he intended, which is a place of receiving, a place of saying, I need from you what I tend to seek away from you. He has to get you back into that space. And what I want you to see is the true grace that he's inviting you to receive. There is so much grace in this response To God after they sin And I call it true grace Because there is a fake grace Or a cheap grace that we might prefer A cheap grace tends to think Love without consequences Or acceptance without accountability Might be another way of saying it Where it's like God will love me No matter what I do So I'm going to go just do whatever I want That means you haven't really experienced God's grace That means you've experienced His love That never fails and never ends And never runs out That's true But his grace goes more than that. His grace is something that says, once you experience it, it creates a heart change in you that says, I don't want to go in those things. If you're going to treat me like this, continue to treat me with goodness. I'll run after your goodness as it runs after me. Give me more of that goodness. And in the true grace that God gives, he talks about consequences. And I want you to see consequences of sin as a grace. Because we need to see that we were not made for things outside of what God intended. And God grace is gracious to let us experience those consequences because it communicates, I wasn't made for that. I'm going to use a fast food analogy, but track with me. I used to love the quarter pounder with cheese at McDonald's. Way too much. The quarter pounder with cheese at McDonald's is not good. Oh, it tastes good. It's not good. And when I got married, I was blessed with a wife who could cook good food. It made me feel good. But every now and then, I saw the golden arches and I heard their becking call. And I thought, what's just one quarter pounder with cheese every six months? And then I felt awful after I ate it, right? I was not made to eat quarter pounder with cheese every day of my life if I wanted to live <laughs> long life. I'm using a dirty fast food analogy just to be able to say there are things that God designed that are blessings to you, and there are things that God designed that will bring about curses and consequences. He's very clear. He's not confusing. And he wants you to see the consequences so that you'll stop pursuing those things. It's a grace to invite you back to goodness. But the beautiful thing of grace is that the consequences are never forever. Did you hear that? The consequences of sin are never forever. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. That's the message of the scriptures. And so I want to pick back up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 through 24. Because I want to reinforce that there is not a curse forever. But I need you to see a few things at the end of this chapter of Galatians chapter 3. Not Galatians, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, after he's issued the punishment, he says, Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Part of the consequences that God made was they were removed from paradise. They were removed from the Garden of Eden. But look at why. God removes them because he says, now they have this evidence of evil and brokenness that has come in, a separation of relationship. They know shame now. If they eat of the tree of life They will eternally know shame They will eternally know consequences They will forever experience the pain of sin And I can't have that So I will have to remove them from the paradise That I intended for a time And make sure they never get back there Because if they eat of the tree of life Then they will just have brokenness and pain forever And I can't have that for them That's not what I wanted But it's never forever The very end of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 22 shows us that God leads us back. He leads us back to paradise. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, the angel is revealing to the writer John this picture. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads. There will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. A curse that will one day end. The tears of sin that we cry now will one day be wiped away. The pain of sickness and death will one day be healed forever, and we're led back to that paradise where there's not two trees that are opposite. There's only trees of life that we get to eat from forever and ever in the presence of God. This is the promise. But I also want you to see in Genesis 3 that God doesn't want us to just wait for the promise. Eternity awaits, but he doesn't say you just have to wait until then. See, there at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we see this promise of what is to come. The true grace that God gives is evidence where they were covering themselves with fig leaves, but what does God do? Instead of sending them out with their beautiful fig leaf fashion design, it says he covered them with animal skins. Now a few things for you to realize about animal skins there. There had not been a sacrifice of animals before then. There's a sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament that is to atone for, that is to make up for and pay for sin. And here we see the first sacrifice. God sees them covering their sin with their own shame and their own effort. And he sacrifices one of his creation, animals, to take from their skin to cover them up and to clothe them with his sacrifice. To be able to communicate them, you don't have to cover up your sin anymore. You don't have to cover up with shame and guilt and live in that anymore. I'm going to cover you up with my grace. I'm going to clothe you with something that I have made. A sacrifice that atones for your sin and restores right relationship. And that is a sign of the promise of what to come in the person of Jesus Christ. That one day there will not be animal sacrifices is what they declared. There will be one sacrifice once for all. So that all of mankind might experience God seeing him in their sin and approaching them saying, where are you? And when they come back and confess, he turns to cover and to clothe them with Christ. That's the language of the New Testament, that if you are in Christ, there is no longer any more condemnation, but you have been clothed in his righteousness. And he invites those of us who believe... To perpetually clothe ourselves with Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. I'm going to read from the message translation because it's a beautiful description. It says, to those of you who have chosen Jesus as your Savior. It says, so chosen by God for this new life of love. Dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength and discipline. Be even tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all purpose garment. Never be without it. God sees you in your sin and your shame and says, Don't try to cover it up. I've got you, I've got a new wardrobe. A new robe for you that you would be clothed, not in your own abilities and effort to try to make up for what was wrong. You don't have to prove that you're worth it. Jesus has already declared, you are so valuable, I've laid down my life for you. And now in my resurrection, I've come to cover you with new life. And every day, we're invited to go back and to clothe ourselves and say, this is who I am now. I am not who I was in my sin. I am not the one who ran from God and hid in guilt and shame. I am now the one who has been honest and humble and received from God the clothing and the covering of Jesus Christ forever and always. And now it's our turn. Like I said at the beginning, God is asking you, where are you? And today, if that question leads you to a place of honesty that says, I've actually been in sin and in hiding, follow the invitation of God to come out like Adam and Eve and to be able to say, This is where I've been. That you might receive the true grace of God that transforms and changes you. It will change you. It might change you the way it changed Adam. And there was this element in the passage that I don't want to skip over that I never saw before I read this week. It says, Then Adam called his wife Eve. I didn't realize that Eve didn't get her name until after the fall. You know what Eve means? Life. Adam went from blaming Eve to blessing Eve after he received the grace of God. He was freed from shaming and freed from guilt and he was also freed from blaming so that he could go around covered in a way that blesses. That's what God desires for you. That you would receive his blessing so that you would walk in blessing. There's also times where some of you are saying, it's not that I need to be honest with them, it's that I need to declare what the prophets have declared throughout history. Here I am, sin me. See, that's another invitation of God when he says, where are you? For some of us today, it's to come out in honesty and confession. For others, it's to say, I want more. Send me to do what you ask. Send me to cultivate the ground and to multiply your goodness. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I'm ready to bless. Where are you? Let's pray. God, as we turn our attention now to you, help us to answer that question. Help us to see you as abounding in grace and loving kindness, that we hear that question as a true invitation for us to become aware of where we've been so we can return to where you are. So Spirit, go and reveal. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Teach us where we need to be taught. Direct our next step. We want to return to you, Jesus. We choose you. In Christ's name. Amen.